Well, not if he's sending out his supporters to talk in this way. And, and look, I mean, the idea of the likes of Rush Limbaugh or Donald Trump lecturing anybody on family values? I mean, I'm sorry, but one thing about my marriage is it's never involved me having to send hush money to a porn star after cheating on my spouse with him or her. So they want to debate family values. Let's debate family values. I'm ready. Everybody to the Politics, Politics, Politics program. My name is Justin Robert Young. Joining you as always, the command center here in Oakland, California. Off to Vegas tomorrow. We've got a lot to talk about. Obviously, Pete Buttigieg has got jokes, but he has a serious issue on his hands. He's got to overperform in Nevada. That would largely start with the debate tonight, Las Vegas, the debut of Michael Bloomberg. He has lorded over this race. <laughs> In fact, today, here's where we'll start. Today, Michael Bloomberg called for all the other moderates to drop out by Super Tuesday if they don't want Bernie Sanders to run away with a delegate lead. I I mean, let's, let's just do us a favor. Collect all of the different theories that are out there. Why people are staying in, why people are dropping out. I will repeat again that the most noble thing that Andrew Yang did was drop out in New Hampshire when he didn't have a shot. Because we're about to get into some very uncomfortable questions with a lot of these candidates, up to and including Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden, Amy Klobuchar, and Pete Buttigieg. Because however this shakes out, there is going to be some serious questions as to if there will be any thinning of the moderate lane. So here's what Bloomberg does. This according to his top strategist, Kevin Sheiky. The fact is, if the state of the race remains status quo with Biden, Pete, Amy in the race for Super Tuesday, Bernie is likely to open up a delegate lead that seems nearly impossible to overcome. I don't think many people understand the dire circumstances here. End quote. You want to know what? I think Sheiky's right. For the never Bernie people, for the folks that desperately believe that Bernie is too far left to win a general election and the nomination of Bernard Sanders is some but something that will almost assuredly mean that Donald Trump will win re-election, then what the real problem here aren't the three candidates that have been running a campaign for the past year. No, the problem is the billionaire who's put $300 million into play for a Super Tuesday strategy that has never worked before. 
So effectively what he's asking, what this dude is asking is that everybody else drop out before Mike Bloomberg is on the ballot once. We are going to take national polls that seriously. That's their that's their argument, by the way. Look at the national polls. Bloomberg is 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 right up there with Biden and Sanders. Obviously, we've seen enough of Biden to understand that he is a decaying corpse. So you need everybody else clear out. ISO, ISO. That's what he wants without appearing on the ballot. I can't, I can't even, man. On a, I, I, this guy. We're getting a lot more on Bloomberg coming up. But first, this. We have released, I, th- I think, Anderson, quite as much as any other candidate has. You think I'm not in good health? Come on out with me on the campaign trail, and I'll let you introduce me to the three or four rallies a day that we do. How's that? Just to be clear, you don't plan to release any more records? I don't. I don't think we will, no. That is Bernie Sanders at the CNN town hall last night. It became the story of the morning. Now, let me... Go a little meta here before we get into some of the 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 micro controversy that has engulfed us. I think that asking for tax and medical records is a little bit of a lazy ask from the press. Not that we shouldn't have access to them and not that we shouldn't know these things, but it should be up to the press to ask for things very specifically. Let's start with tax stuff, whether they be the full return, whether they be a summary, whether they be addendums. Major outlets should get together and decide, here's what we're going to ask of these candidates. And now the campaigns can decide whether or not en masse they are going to give us what we have requested or if they're going to give us part of it. But at least then you have demonstrated two things. Number one that this is not about chasing down one specific campaign and trying to hurt them. And number two, that the press has at least done enough research to know what they're looking for. Same when it comes to medical records. We should want to know specifically what you're looking for. The reports of, of a physical, for example that it has to be X amount of years old, that it has to be done within a year. Like, if you don't know what you are going for right off the top, right? Right at the beginning, then everything else is going to get muddled. And you're going to get into situations like this, where Bernie Sanders releases three notes from his doctor and says, well, nobody else has released anything else, because by the way, Bernie's only one of the very old candidates that are running. I wouldn't release anything else if nobody else is. And beyond that, I feel like Bernie Sanders is the one that we know the most about. That dude had a heart attack. If you are worried about a candidate who might have a heart attack, well, the the juries return their verdict. (laughs) That dude had one. He does not seem to be in any kind of imminent physical danger. At least in, in the rallies that I've seen him, I would worry more about some of the mental acuity of some of the other candidates, to be frank. But that is the meta point. Here's what happened this morning. This was uh, Bernie Sanders 
uh, communications director responding to questions about that moment. And what you're seeing right now is really reminiscent of some of the kind of smear, kind of a skepticism campaigns that have been run against a lot of different candidates in the past, um, questioning where they're from, um, aspects of their, uh, um, their, their lineage, et cetera, et cetera. And it's really telling, given that none of the same concern is being demonstrated for Michael Bloomberg, who's the same age as Bernie Sanders, who has suffered heart attacks in the past, this is what you would call reckless communication. It's not necessarily bad communication because I don't think it necessarily turns off anybody that you wouldn't already have pissed off anyway, but it is reckless. We just got like a very casual drive-by that questioning whether or not Bernie Sanders' heart is healthy equals birtherism, and then we just zoom right on into... Michael Bloomberg had a heart attack. Did you know that? Did you know that Michael Bloomberg had a heart attack? Well, as it turns out, he didn't. Or at least he didn't have a public one. Michael Bloomberg had a stent put in, this according to Maggie Haberman of the New York Times. Now, do I think it's possible that Michael Bloomberg did have a heart attack? And that it's just something that was kept under wraps? Mm-hmm. I think that that is indeed plausible. But we don't know for sure. And so that's why this is reckless. One might say it's a skepticism campaign designed to put a thought into the minds of voters whether or not it can be confirmed conclusively. Either way, we are officially in the no more Mr. Nice Guy phase of this process. People are going to start getting pushed to drop out. And if they don't, they're going to be hit with negative ads until they are so damaged that they have no choice but to drop out. Bernie and Bloomberg have appeared to lock eyes on each other and say, forget the rest, there are no other divisions, this is our two-horse race. Which is, like, insane! It's crazy to me, considering the fact that Bloomberg hasn't been on a ballot yet. I think it's smart for Bernie. It's smart for Bernie to say, yeah, Klobuchar and Buttigieg, the only two moderates that have seemed to have actually excite voters, voters that have been asked to go into a booth or go into a caucus, the only two that have actually done that, ah, whatever, screw them. National polls, Bloomberg, untested, unproven Bloomberg. He's the number one. Smart for Bernie. Smart for Bernie. Bloomberg, meanwhile, is telling everybody to drop out. And just as I'm recording this, dropped an ad where Joe Biden is praising Bloomberg. So he's going after Biden. Biden's going after Bloomberg as well. We're going to see a very, very, very contentious debate. And let me, let me put it this way. If we don't see a contentious debate, then candidates should drop out tonight. If you don't start swinging on other candidates on that stage in Vegas tonight, then honestly, what are you doing here? Get out. Politics. All right. Before we go any further, I want to remind folks that you can support this show by heading on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. You guys continue. Continue to make me being on the road possible. Let me ask you a question. Because if there's an answer to this, I, I want to know it because I want to meet them. I want to I want to hang out with them. I, I want to swap professional tips. Is there another person that's self-financing a trip through these primaries? 
that is doing it like we are through Patreon, where I'm just beholden to you, I don't know if anybody else is doing it. I know there's a lot of politics podcasts that are making a lot of money right now, but I don't know if they're buying plane tickets, getting rental cars, getting hotel rooms. Like, for all of these, maybe Iowa. I know that the, the Chapo's Trap House guys were in Iowa, maybe maybe New Hampshire. Hell, I, I've noticed that there's a bunch more people that are going to be out in Vegas, mostly because Vegas ain't a bad place to be at any time. But I don't know if there's anybody else doing it like we are. That's special. That's awesome. Thank you. A reminder that you get at the $3 level the uh, bonus podcast, one on Monday, one on Thursday. Uh, Thursday, uh, the episode tomorrow will come out a little late because I want to get sound from Vegas. I'll be in Vegas. So we'll we'll land and we'll we'll see what we can see that night. Uh, the Friday episode is going to be pretty wild because guess who got credentialed for the Trump rally? <laughs> yeah, boy. I'm going to be there for, for, for the Trump rally on on Friday. Probably going to be live streaming it. Uh, certainly going to have audio for the show. It's going to be, it's going to be something, man. It's going to be something. And you can support all of it at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. One more note. I know we got a bunch of people at the $3 level. That is by far the most popular level that people subscribe to. But if you ain't got that kind of scratch, if you just want, you know, for a buck, just put in for a buck an episode, I got something for you guys too. When I was researching Raise the Dead, I really fell in love with Theodore White, the writing of Theodore White. He uh, wrote the Making of the President series. I kind of feel like his writing is something that's been lost in our modern era because the genre that he really uh, gave birth to, the, the, the tale of the campaign, wound up, I think, naturally sort of gravitating toward access and quotes tell-all elements. So you're with these campaigns, you're talking to the campaign people, they're going to be way more candid with you off the record, presuming that none of those quotes will come out until after everything is all wrapped up and you, you know, are are not attributed to their quotes. But I love the way that Theodore White wrote about the campaign like kind of an epic battle, like an epic war poem, something like that. I love that style of writing and I wanted to write it for you. So if you are a patron at any level, you can catch my first drafts of the road diaries. Uh, They are written in their own weird kind of style, but I hope you guys like them. They're available to all patrons, no matter what level you are at. Just uh, head on over to takepoliticsseriously.com. One last thing. We promised an epic haul of Campaign Undertaker merch for you guys. We have uh, two posters live that were taken directly from the final Yang 2020 rally. So if you are Yang Gang, this is is gigantic uh, keepsake. This is like frame it merch. We have some winners here. This is this was our biggest gong where people came in and were and were looking for the merch. So congratulations to 
Christopher Hill. Congratulations to Jonathan Pineda. And congratulations to D Laser. You have won the Yang merchandise. And I'm throwing a little Bennett thing in there too, just for laughs for one of you. Go ahead and email me your home address uh, or business address to theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Politics! Here's how much I love you guys. Here's how much I care about you, the PX3 listenership. I spent hours, hours watching old aughts era New York City mayoral debates so I could get a sense of how Mike Bloomberg handles himself behind a podium when he's got moderators asking him questions and opponents right next to him. Now, a lot of you guys may or may not be aware of of what went on during these debates, even the New Yorkers. I was working in Lower Manhattan and living for a brief period in Queens when Mike Bloomberg was the mayor. And I remember some of the broad strokes of these elections, but I certainly do not remember any of these particular broadcasts. So I have some takeaways. Here's the first. Number one, Mike Bloomberg is at his best when he is your family's money manager. Someone that just knows the ins and outs of finance and and he is he has he has a very reassuring voice when it comes to that. He has a very confident voice when it comes to that and he's worth like 40 billion dollars, so obviously the proof is in the pudding. I think he's going to have his most effective moments in the debate tonight when he goes after Bernie Sanders for the cost of programs like the Green New Deal and Medicare for All. Mostly because he's going to sound like somebody who is in the banking industry or somebody that is very financially literate and not like a senator. Most of the criticism that Bernie Sanders has had to take up till this point have been from the Joe Bidens and Amy Klobuchar's of the world. And they're always going to talk about money like it is an appropriation. Not like it's a 401k that you need to feed your family with. Here's an example. This is from his first re-election in 2005. Mr. Bloomberg, is that a good plan? Is that a better plan well, than Mr. what you're Fred doing? Mr. wants to cut taxes, but he also wants to build affordable housing with tax revenues, so you can't have it both ways. I think you've got to understand this is an expensive city. It always has been, probably always will be. What we've got to do is find ways so that people can afford to stay here. That's why I've fought against increases in the fares and the MTA. That's why I, make sure I fought in favor of getting the minimum wage raised. That's why I fought to make sure that we are building building affordable housing. We have an 86,000 unit program being built with capital dollars and private dollars, and we're better than halfway there. In practical- That's why I want to bring jobs here, because in the end, the best answer is a job for everybody. Well, this woman, for instance, The has more a job he's a budget has- nerd, the more he's somebody that even from the outside is going to be able to describe government bloat and how he would fix things, the better off he is. Here's another example. This one is from 2009. 
we all are struggling with this kind of an economy, they're the ones that are going to have to reach in their pocket and pay those job-killing taxes. And he said he's not going to reduce the size of the workforce, but he wants to put these things in. Well, the money's got to come from someplace, and that's from everybody in the city. He said he wants a broad-based tax. One time he said a millionaire's tax. He said so many things. I can't keep straight who he wants to tax, but he's going to tax somebody. So let's talk about the bad. Here were a few very, very bad moments that I found. Let's start with Mike Bloomberg, the billionaire, discussing what the middle class is. The question was, what would you define as a middle class income? Do you have a number for that? There, there isn't a number because somebody that's here single is very different than somebody that has a family. A middle class person is a person who has a job and can pay the bills but does not have a lot of extra money. And they probably have a little bit of fear of what would happen to them if they lost their job. But they do have a, an apartment and they do have meals and they do have a little bit of entertainment and they have a future. There you so go. So anywhere between you have meals and unlimited money. <laughs> That's the middle class. The middle class to Mike Bloomberg is you can pay your bills and you have a little entertainment so you can afford a movie ticket, I guess. And there's no set amount of dollars. <laughs> That's a pretty broad definition of the middle class. Here's somewhere else that he got caught up. This was uh, the November debate in 2005. He has asked the following question by his opponent. Mike, uh, you've said in the past that the poor get better health care in this city than the wealthy. Do you honestly believe those words? What I was saying is I cannot tell you how proud I am of the progress that our public hospitals, our 11 public hospitals have made. It is true if you go into those hospitals without any insurance, without any money, you will get the same care as if you can come in and pay for your services. And that care is the best medicine available any place in the world today. 30,000 people work in those hospitals and they have transformed hospitals that people were willing to walk away from, wanted to sell, wanted to close into 11 of the best hospitals any single place in this world. You betcha I'm proud of him. What Mike Bloomberg is saying there is that a poor person who gets emergency room treatment is on par, if not better, than a wealthy person's preventative health care treatment. Again, I mean, that's, that's really what the debate is over our current health care system. Beyond what people do in emergency rooms, which theoretically should be for, I don't know, emergencies. They are not a substitute for somebody saying, maybe I should get a checkup. Maybe I should, with an abundance of caution, go do some physical therapy that would reduce the need for me to at some point see a, 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 an emergency physician. This is the kind of stuff that, that Bloomberg just has a blind spot on. And I do think that everybody else on that stage tonight is going to look to exploit him on it. So let's start with a question that he is almost certainly going to get. It came early in 
all the debates, really, that, that I watched of him today, why do you spend so much on ads? He's going to get this tonight as well. Mr. Bloomberg, a lot has been made over the last couple of days, the fact that you have spent about $64 million of your own money on this campaign. And I would predict that you'll probably go over $100 million this year in spending. If you've done such a good job as you've claimed, why the need to spend so much money? Well, first, let me say thank you for having me and uh, thank you for the sponsors. Let me get to the question. I'm trying to get my message out to every community in this city. It costs a lot of money. I don't have a big de Democratic machine behind me. The city is five to one Democratic. Uh, I'm trying to uh, have a good record. I'm trying to tell everybody exactly what we've done, and I'm trying to focus on what we still have to do. I would expect a very similar answer tonight. Uh, he'll probably lean more on the fact that he's new to the Democratic Party and that he's going to be running against Donald Trump, who gets so much free publicity. But I would, I would expect that it, it's just going to be... Bloomberg likes to rely... On, on two out pitches. Number one, I'm just trying to get my ideas out. It is a, a, a resonant point because it allows for the viewer to take themselves down the, the fantasy of, of, okay, well, if I had billions of dollars, what could I do? Are you really going to begrudge this man for having the money? He wants to bring it right there. The second thing that he does, and he does this often, is he just repeats, there's going to be an election. If you have a problem with what I'm doing, don't vote for me. If you don't have a problem with what I'm doing, then I would really love your vote. He does this multiple times during multiple debates. Here's another question he is absolutely going to get asked tonight. At least I would assume. What's with all the campaign contributions? You have put a lot of money into play for a lot of different people. You have uh, earned a tremendous amount of endorsements, many of whom have come from people that you've donated to their campaigns. Is that fair? Is that right? He got this question back in 2009. Here was his answer. It was reported tonight by the New York Times that your accountant, Mr. Geller, gave $26,000 to the mayor of Newark, Cory Booker. Um, sure, and you, I've, you, I've you, done you, fundraisers for Cory Booker. Cory Booker is one of the futures of our here. city. You've talked about a quid pro quo here with, Co with him getting donations from California. Why is the same not I, here true last for what time you're saying? I, last time I heard you talk, I don't think you said that we were giving city monies to Cory Booker. I've given money to Cory Booker. I've run a fundraiser for him. I think Cory Booker and Michael Nutter, who I can't wish too well for the next seven games, but other than that, Adrian Fenty, it's a whole bunch of new mayors around this country, and I think we should all get behind them and support them. And I'm going to do everything I can to get them and get my friends to get them to, to pull together these cities that were falling apart. Newark was a disaster. Cory Booker has given them hope. He's the kind of guy Newark needs, and he's the kind of guy that we need uh, the new uh, mayor of Detroit. Another one, another bright guy. He's, he's, this is not a young guy. This is a guy my age or pretty close to it who's come in with new ideas and he's going to turn around a city that lost their major industry. And this, the, for the first time, Detroit really has some hope be, after the decline of the automobile industry. We need to support more of these kinds of people and I'm happy to do Adrian it. Adrian Fenty was the mayor of Washington, D.C., for the record, not Detroit. <laughs> I, uh, 
honestly don't know who he's talking about in, in Detroit because it, it certainly shouldn't be Kwame Kilpatrick, who at this point was out of his mayorship and in 2013 was sentenced to 28 years in prison for corruption. So I don't know. Maybe he was just talking about Fenty and, and he got mixed up. Long and the short of it, if he gets these questions, his habit is to go to, hey, look, if you got a problem with me giving money, then you got a problem with their campaign. I supported their campaign the same way a voter would. The difference is that I'm a billionaire and I can give them thousands and thousands of dollars. Now, that does not mean that he can't be further attacked on it as he was during this very debate. This happened right after the answer that you just heard. This is Bloomberg's opponent, Bill Thompson. This is just a continuation of the worst kind of politics that there is. This pay-to-endorse politics that Mike Bloomberg has been engaged in, in charitable contributions to individuals and organizations across the city of New York under the guise of, geez, I'm just doing good. And the reality is he's doing it with the expectation of something in return. We continue to see this time and time and time again. When we talk about disclosure, Mike, Tell the people of the city of New York for a change. Let them know who are you giving contributions to, charitable contributions, so they can see who's endorsing you in return for charitable contributions, in return for support. We saw this again during the debate on term limits, where individuals were sitting in the front that you had people brought in to pack the front rows of organizations that had gotten charitable contributions or doing business with the city of New York. Tell the people of New York City the truth. Oh, oh, yeah. By the way, in case you weren't hip to it, uh, Michael Bloomberg rewrote term limits for New York City mayors so he could run for mayor a third time. So that debate that we were just playing from, he wasn't supposed to be allowed to run in that election. He rewrote the rules for that. But this was the biggest thing I was surprised by. Not once in any of the debates that I watched was Michael Bloomberg ever questioned about stop and frisk. Something that has, from this vantage point, gone on to almost define his reign as mayor. If you're unfamiliar with this program, it effectively was a police directive that said if you see somebody, even if they're even close to possibly suspicious, this obviously led to racial profiling concerns, you stop them and you frisk them. You, you, you pat them down to see whether or not they have a gun on them. This has been the subject of some leaked audio from a speech that Bloomberg made where he was discussing the need for stop and frisk. Bloomberg has since apologized for it, but he certainly didn't apologize for it in 2005. This is when the program is theoretically going. This is how he described the police and their relationship with the African-American Latino communities in New York City. Our police department, if you take a look at it, it is very diverse. It reflects the community. Um, they have an enviable record in the last four years of bringing people together. We've brought, one of the things I'm most proud of is we've brought crime down 
while improving police-community relations throughout this entire city. And uh, I think they've done a great job. And uh, sadly, we're always going to have some bad people. We've brought down hate crimes by 45%, but there's still too many. And furthermore, on the need to get guns off the street. Again, that this is, even in the leaked audio, the justification for why he put in this program that went on for, for over a decade. The justification was we got to get guns off the streets, and this is certainly something that backs that up. Yes, shootings are up. There's too many guns in the street, and we've got to go and get the guns off the street. We have record number of gun arrests. We are devoting our resources to trying to do that, but we need help from the federal government, and I don't think we got any help. Make no mistake, he's talking about stop and frisk there. That is what the the the, the way he's describing it is... is uh, what he said in the Aspen thing. Here, listen, th this is from that, that leaked audio. 25% of murders and murderers and murder victims fit one and all. You can just take the description and Xerox it and pass it up all the time. They are male minorities, 15 to 25. That's true in New York, it's true in virtually every city. People say, oh my God, you are arresting kids for marijuana that are all minorities. Yes. That's true. Why? Because we put all the cops in the minority neighborhoods. Yes, that's true. Why do we do it? Because that's where all the crime is. And the, the way you get the guns out of the kids' hands is uh, to throw them against the wall and frisk them. And then they start, they say, oh, I don't want that. I don't want to get caught. So they don't bring the gun. They still have a gun, but they leave it at home. Now, I want to be fair here because Bloomberg has apologized for that audio. He has said explicitly that stop and frisk was something that was started before he came into power and he wished he had stopped it sooner. Although it was in action for far longer with Bloomberg, there were more arrests made under that program with Bloomberg. And as you can hear, in his own debate performance, he is highlighting the reason why he needs that program in there. He's never answered for that on a debate stage. I will be blown away if we don't see him do it tonight. Politics. My guest today is Brooks Flippin. He's a professor of history at Southeastern Oklahoma State University. And his latest piece in the Washington Post teaches about the lessons that Pete Buttigieg can learn from the rise of Jimmy Carter Welcome to the show, Brooks. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So, obviously, this is a very interesting primary. It is a very widespread primary, but there is one fresh face that, at least to this point, when we are talking uh, before the Nevada caucus, who has had outsized success compared to his resume, and that is Pete Buttigieg. You recently wrote this piece comparing him to Jimmy Carter. So before we get to how Buttigieg is similar, let's talk a little bit about the rise of, of Carter. Uh, what is the biggest thing that for, for folks that might not be as familiar with Carter breaking onto the scene that, that the people need to know? Well, Carter was a uh, relative unknown nationally, and it was the era of Watergate. And in the wake of Watergate, people were really sort of sick of Washington. It was seen as a cesspool. And Carter, he'd been governor of Georgia, 
claimed uh, to sort of be outsider. Uh, he he was going to clean it clean it up and uh, and have a fresh face. And I think that was really key to his rise. If you could do me a favor, because this is something that I think gets lost, especially when we're comparing eras uh, from then to now. Can you just describe what political media looked like at that point? Well, at that point, the political media was basically the broadcast networks, uh, ABC, NBC, and CBS. Cable television had just begun, uh, and it was really expanding in the 80s, but the uh, broad, the old broadcast networks dominated. So effectively, the entirety of the political media diet for the nation was whatever the broadcast networks would either carve out of the nightly news or do specials, right? And then obviously your, your local newspaper. But if you weren't mentioned there, then you you didn't effectively exist on the national level, right? It was certainly difficult to overcome, yes. Because I think that is that is something that is that is very, very, very different. <laughs> I feel like just kind of gets lumped in when we were like, oh, well, this person did this. And it's like, like well, yeah, but... Now we are saturated. You can you can spend all day with fresh content in a way that was just simply not possible back then. It, you really need to adjust your political strategies, and if you're going to cite similarities, well, that'd be one huge difference, certainly. All right, so Jimmy Carter wants to run for president. Uh, back then, how do you start off doing it? Well, J- Jimmy Carter he had a, a background as a— uh, a naval naval nuclear engineer, and he uh, had gone to Annapolis and uh, given up that naval career to return home to run his family farm, his his famous peanut farm. And uh, he had parlayed that into uh, politics at the state level. He served in the the state senate and then had uh, become governor of Georgia. So while I say he was an outsider, he was certainly not an outsider to politics, just national politics. Sure. And and who control who is who are are the big uh, uh names in the Democratic Party? Like who would be seen as Democratic national leaders uh at this time as Carter is contemplating running? Well, there's many. Uh there when Carter was contemplating running, there was there was sort of a wide open field. You had people like Arizona Representative Morris Udall and California Governor Jerry Brown. Uh, you had conservatives like Texas Senator Lloyd Benson and and uh, even segregationist Alabama Governor George Wallace, who'd famously run as independent several years before. So it was a wide open field nationally. Carter obviously is very famous for his relationship to Iowa, uh, seen as one of the first candidates to really kind of set that template. Uh, talk a little bit about the the beginning of his explosion onto the national stage. Well, Jimmy Carter put a lot of emphasis on the uh, first caucus in Iowa, which was in January 19th. And he uh, basically banked on that, if, if expecting that that would lead to momentum. And, you know, the Democratic Party had just several years before done away with its old sort of a leadership laden backroom, smoky filled backroom way of selecting its candidates. And it was much more democratic. And Carter was uh, certainly 
quick to realize that momentum would follow anyone who won the early contest. And so he banked on Iowa as uh, a strategy. And if he pick up a few early victories, then, you, then the, the media will take note. And that's exactly what happened. Because, uh, again, you know, all you have are those little slivers on the news, right? So in, in, in the absence of, of anything else that would be a bigger story than Iowa obviously is that. Uh, what is it about Carter that specifically, obviously he put a lot of work in there to the Hawkeye State, but were there any things that just made him a specifically attractive candidate to Iowans? Iowa, you tend to think of as being, as you hear today, sort of a uh, a moderate, white-dominated. Carter was a Southerner, and at a time, many liberals dominated the Democratic Party. And Carter was appealing to many Iowa caucus voters because not only was he an outsider, but he promised to sort of unite a divided party, the younger liberal uh, side of the party and the more moderate conservative side. And I think that was also part of the attraction to, to voters in Iowa. Something that, that is, no, no matter what linked to Carter, is obviously his uh, a role as, as a man of faith. Uh, is, is that something, I mean, uh, obviously the, the Democratic electorate now in Iowa uh, is not considered particularly evangelical compared to, let's say, the Republican side. But is that something that, that Carter uses to his advantage in those early phases of the the primary? Well, this certainly helped. It took more prominence later in the campaign, but he proclaimed himself, you know, a born again evangelical, and the media really picked up on that. They didn't know what that meant, and uh, you know that that he promised never to lie if if elected president and. It really added to his appeal as something different, as an outsider. And you got to remember it in the wake of Watergate and President Ford pardoning uh, Richard Nixon, it seemed like a cesspool. And, and here's a man who comes out and he he uh, does things like promise that he'll never lie and gave an interview to Playboy magazine to sort of show <laughs> that no man was above sin. Uh, he is just a, a different candidate, and it was it was good press. I mean, the the media loved it, and uh, the year of evangelical was what I believe Time called it uh, as as Carter rose, and Carter was a a big impetus for that. And and this, if you could uh, describe, because I think evangelical is a word that gets thrown around a lot. A lot of folks might know exactly what that means, but but if you were to define evangelical, how would you define it? Well, evangelical and born again are, are two separate terms. Maybe I should clarify that. Evangelical, take it as is the, the Great Commission to spread their faith. Born again is a belief that you need to reaffirm your uh, your faith as an adult. Uh, you, you tend to think of uh, baptism as something that uh, happens when you're when you're younger. The Catholic Church, you need to get baptized as quickly as possible. Uh, Born again, the Baptist, the faithful of the confirmation of your faith as a, as an adult, and it is a, a willing acceptance of of Christ as an adult that makes you born again. Now, you know many evangelicals have been born again, many born again uh, 
Christians are evangelical, others are not. And uh, it's it, the evangelical itself is a very diverse movement. It, it, it's it can become somewhat convoluted, especially when you start talking about the religious right later on. Sure. So so evangelical then at its very base is proselytizing. It, it is it is it, no matter what uh, a lot you are in life, no matter what your job is. It is partly on you to spread the word, and obviously that would only become more important if you were in a role of public service like, you know, governor or president. Correct. Okay. Uh, uh, so so Carter uh, uh, goes on. Now, at this point, what what does the primary process look like, and how does it differ from what we have today? Well, today we still start with the Iowa caucus. Uh, in their day, they went on to Mississippi and Oklahoma uh, before they returned back north to go to New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Vermont, and out west with Washington State. Today, of course, after Iowa, there's New Hampshire, and uh, followed very soon thereafter by Super Tuesday. And uh, there was no Super Tuesday back in 1976. The, the the primaries were more spread out. So this this really did lay out really well for Carter then. If he goes right from Iowa, makes a big splash there, and then has two Southern contests right after. Right, and and that does help build build up his momentum. He uh, he did well in in uh, Iowa and didn't Mississippi. He ran into George Wallace, and Wallace, of course, was stronger there, but. But Carter rebounded in Oklahoma, and so he and Wallace battled out these early states. But when he turned northward and he got into New Hampshire, Carter argued that you know Wallace was a regional candidate and could not win a national election. Now, Carter was this Southerner, and uh, he could attract Southern votes, but he wasn't Wallace, and so he could attract Northern votes, and he argued that you know he was the most electable. And so the, the electoral map sort of worked towards uh, Carter's advantage. Wallace, having done well early, scared a lot of people, and, and here's a southern moderate alternative to Wallace. And so that, that, that got Carter going. All right, so, so now that we have a little primer on Carter, let's switch to, to, to some of the comparisons that, that you made. What was the first moment that you looked at Pete Buttigieg and and said to yourself, "Wow, I, I I see some Jimmy Carter in him." Well, it's I knew I'd researched Carter and I knew Carter was a outsider, and it seemed like what was propelling him was a disgust with Washington. And I I watched Pete Buttigieg, and here's uh, somebody not well known. He is uh, calm. He's deliberative, sort of like Carter was. He exuded self-confidence. Uh, and I'd heard that he was a naval veteran, which brought Carter to mind and seemed to be a fresh face. And it, it just, it just a thought, wow, it's, he's, uh, you know, he's got a little bit of Carter going for him there. Now, obviously this is a very, very, very wide open contest that we are looking at right now. And the moderate lane, even, as we have now had to contest remains very clogged yet nobody has had the kind of electoral uh you know success so far as Pete Buttigieg 
are there any specific lessons that that you see him as a candidate employing in the same way that Carter did both in Iowa and then in New Hampshire? Well, Carter's 1976 campaign, it's it's difficult for me to, to criticize it as a, as a campaign. It was indeed successful. But flowing from his campaign, once in office, it created problems for Carter. So um, it's, in a way of saying mistakes, if Buttigieg were successful he, and it, following Carter's blueprint, he might he might have some trouble. Uh, <laughs> Carter, you know, he he was lying at a, a sort of a, a divisive cultural point in our life. The 1960s liberalism had been advancing and always seems to be demanding more and a, a conservative reaction had begun. And, you know, Carter is sitting there saying, I'm I'm moderate and I can bridge this divide. And he tried to please everybody on both sides, especially when it came to things like the women's rights, uh, uh, abortion, the Equal Rights Amendment, and interesting for Pete Buttigieg, but gay rights was uh, a big issue in Jimmy Carter's campaign. And Carter tried to appease both sides of this. He, many religious conservatives saw in the born-again rhetoric one of their own, and many religious conservatives were disgusted with the liberalism of the day. And yet Carter, while touting himself as a born-again, was a, a Baptist, and, and Baptist traditionally stressed the separation of church and state. And so what Carter did was Carter couched these issues as something uh, the liberalism is perhaps sinful, but not a role for government to regulate. And he promised uh, an end to discrimination and then didn't go far enough for many of the feminists. And he he ended up trying to go down the middle of the road, and the old saying is if you go down the middle of the road, you get run over. Yeah. And so as, as Pete Buttigieg were uh, successful in his campaign, you know, I would think that he would need uh, to try to uh, not please everybody, to develop a strong constituency. And uh, I think he should also not approach Washington with sort of a, a preachy looking, I'm going to clean up the mess uh, attitude. Too much of that can alienate people that are uh, Washington veterans. They think here comes this outsider who thinks he knows everything, and, and that's just not smart. You need to cultivate your allies in D.C. Yeah, you know, the the rhetoric that I've seen him use on on the trail is is less I'm going to clean things up and more there will be a new day to dawn, right? There are these very poetic looks toward, hey, let's all understand that we have things to clean up the day after Donald Trump is out of office and, and, and I am president. It's He's certainly not a very forceful candidate unless he's drawing lines in the sand on the liberal side. And so I guess that would be my next question in terms of Carter's ideology. Uh, how hard of a line and how hard or sorry, how much did Carter define himself by not being a liberal or progressive compared to Buddha judge who that seems to be the, the, the most forceful uh, stance that he's taken so far. Carter, Carter had, I would argue, less competition for the moderate mantle of the party. Uh, you can get into maybe Henry Jackson or, or some of the other competitors he had. But uh, 
without a clear front runner, I think Carter had uh, an easier ability to to define himself, and uh, he promised he he promised to clean up the mess and to bridge these cultural divides, and he argued that financially he was more responsible than many of the liberal alternatives, and uh, it it's I think that when it comes to policies, for example, when when he was elected. Uh, one of the first things he did was he went after some of the uh, he he described some of the the water projects that key Democrats had advocated as he defined them as pork barrel. He was going to be fiscally responsible. He yeah. said, and uh, and you know that alienated pet projects of people in in the uh, in in Washington. It 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 alienated liberals, but you know it it was is another sign that he was going to rein in. That liberalism that had grown out of the 1960s. He was not uh, Ted Kennedy in in that way, or he was not uh, the some of the Watergate babies that had come in the off-year uh, congressional elections in 1974. So he was he had a he was able to freely define himself as an alternative to what had, uh, the liberalism of the the dominant part of the party then. That is something that you know. Uh, Buttigieg was out there in in New Hampshire uh, talking about how his party is afraid to mention the deficit and he's not afraid to mention the deficit and we should be talking about spending. So that that at least I mean, especially in 2020 is uh, uh, the kind of language that you haven't really heard a lot from well, from Democrats. Buttigieg describes himself as a, a democratic capitalist, I remember. And, and I, I know that's in contrast to 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 Bernie Sanders, certainly. But uh, you know, he he described himself numerous times as fiscally conservative, and that was back when he was mayor. And uh, his record was moderate, you might say, as as mayor, to to, to my knowledge. And so it it's he he is not culturally he is advocating uh, gay and lesbian rights and inequality, but in fiscal matters, he uh, it appears to me to be a definite moderate. Now here's the where where I think these paths diverge because as you mentioned Carter did not have a tremendous amount of competition for the moderate lane whereas you know Pete Buttigieg certainly does in this looming very unconventional highly financed campaign of Michael Bloomberg when when I look at the coverage that's coming out of Iowa that's coming out and Iowa obviously had its own problems but Iowa and New Hampshire it seems, at least to my eyes, that the, the the great momentum that normally comes with either winning or being very competitive in these contests simply isn't there for Pete in, in the way that it might be for candidates in the past, and certainly for Carter, who tended to write that blueprint. Is, do you agree with that? Is, is, is there is there really any momentum? I think there's a lot momentum? of truth in that. I think the way the, the Iowa caucus is, flamed out this year didn't help uh, Buttigieg at all. I think he was smart. He was the first candidate to come out and address uh, the media uh, the night of the Iowa caucuses. And pretty well, he much, was he was yeah he was the only one to declare victory. He was actually the last right, to speak. Victory, but, right, and but, so yeah. he was making a play for that momentum. Yeah, yeah. He knew that it was going to be close, and he knew he'd be near the top. And uh, perception is reality in that sense, and so he sort of laid claim to the momentum. 
And, uh, you know, I, 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 Carter didn't have, Carter pretty much dominated the Iowa caucuses. And, uh, and so I don't think Carter had that problem, but, you know, it's, it's, uh, it was four or five days until Mississippi, uh, in 1976. And uh, today New Hampshire follows quickly and New Hampshire is also sort of booted territory. And, uh, I, I, he didn't, the, the difference would be, he didn't face that when you're, when, and when he's campaigning against say, I'm, I'm a more moderate alternative, uh, he didn't have as much of a threat from uh that Carter may may have faced with with George Wallace a, a good foil uh he had performed evenly with Bernie Sanders in in both new uh Iowa and New Hampshire and uh I think nowadays so though with with Bernie leading in uh Nevada as we speak mm-hmm. you know I think I think that the path is there for Pete Buttigieg to say you know I can win nationally and I'm I'm not I'm not this liberal he has a foil there yeah yeah you know uh, the 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 question is uh, and and this kind of gets into the idea that there are so many voices there's so much content including yahoos with random podcasts like like this one uh, uh that that can make the case for so many people uh, uh you know you, you really don't have a lot of incentive for you know anybody in that moderate lane to want to drop out uh, because they all believe that there's some path for them to have some kind of resurrection and and to be in sunnier days if they're uh, if they're in in the doldrums now. Well, I I, I think that for moderates and Democrats today, you're you're worried about fracturing the vote. Well, I mean, yeah, Bloomberg's coming in. You got Klobuchar. You've and Jimmy Carter didn't face as much of a problem on that. Again, he was easier for him to be the the moderate candidate uh, and. I don't know if this is going to end up in some type of brokered convention, which would be an interesting from a political history standpoint. Do you but, think uh, they, cause you're somebody that obviously has spent a lot of time, uh, uh, you know, looking at, at presidential history. I find the concept of a brokered convention, something that would seem almost an opposite to the structure that we have built and operated for about 50 years at this point. Do you think that a brokered convention is even possible? That's definitely possible. I, I, I don't. I, I think everybody's going to try to try to avoid that because it would be, I think, destructive for the Democratic Party. <laughs> yeah, and very acrimonious. <laughs> I mean, that's that's uh, the thing is people. But the, the backroom dealing, the swapping, and and the horse trading going on. You're right, and and it would be. Uh, real advantage to Donald Trump to to couch this as anti-democratic, uh, but you know it's it, people are going to vote as they're going to vote, and it's it's a wild card. It's 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 an interesting election, and I'm not sure there's an exact previous election that we can no. with the media the media the way it is today. You were mentioning at the outset and the money that's going into politics today. Uh, this may, in many many respects, be unprecedented. You know that's it. For, for the amount of and smart people that are talking about a, a, a broker convention like it's just something to do, it, it blows me away. Like, I mean, even if you want to go back to the most recent ones, they don't they don't historically produce strong candidates. They, they produce very, very angry parties. Right. The very, very divided party. 
Yeah. I, I think that the only people that may be angling for a broker convention would be moderates trying to stop the, the momentum of Bernie Sanders at this point. But it's so early. I mean, I did, we're before Super Tuesday and anything could change. So uh, I'm going to wait and see what happens uh, this week and and uh, maybe have to revise everything I've said. <laughs> well, no, I think I think that you've uh, uh, you've done a very very good job because I I totally uh, uh, agree that I think that there is a lot of that Carter DNA in at least the 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 projection and construction of the Buddha Judge campaign, and I was very very happy to have you on. Of course, uh, Brooks Flippin, a professor of history at Southeastern Oklahoma State University. He is also the author of Jimmy Carter, The Politics of Family and the Rise of the Religious Right. Uh, uh, thank you so much for coming on, Brooks. Well, it's been great. Thanks again. Politics. And that'll wrap us up for today. I would like to thank the tip of our spear, the Titanic $10 tier. They are Adam, Adam, Andrew, Andy, Brad, Chad, Dennis, DL, D-Laser, Rosen Summers, Jim Wright, Jonathan, Lindsay, Michael, Mike, Nicholas, Nick, Olin, and Angel, Paul, Peter, Squids, Mixtape, Stephen, Will, and Zach. You want to join their ranks? Head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. You want two bonus episodes? Well, you don't even have to spend that much. It's just three bucks. For two extra episodes each and every week. And also, all patrons get my road diaries now that you'll have a new one of those as soon as I'm done with uh, Las Vegas. Hell, if you want to make sure that, to my knowledge, the only independent, self-funded correspondent on the road right now, you want to be a part of that? Head on over there. TakePoliticsSeriously.com All right. If you want to give me an email, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. You want to sign up for my free political newsletter, it is available at freepoliticalnewsletter.com. All of my social media, Justin R. Young on Twitter, Justin R. Young on Instagram. Especially when I'm out on the road, this is a good time to follow me on social because you're going to get a lot of as-it-happens stuff. Till next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying... I was listening to a show that was talking about politics. Then I was watching a television program that was explaining politics, and I saw somebody on the street talking about politics so loudly they were about to fall over. But friends, this is the only show that dares to talk about all
Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>